When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Where my sister at? Right where my sister at? <laughs> I said, where my sister at? She right here. Mm-hmm. She right here. Mm-hmm. She right here. <laughs> hey! My sister. Brothers and sisters. My name is Kirk Franklin, and I come to give you good words. Let's go. Good words. Today's guest is the homie. She's the homie from way back. We go back like shoulder pads and suit jackets. Y'all, I'm talking about patent leather shoes with white socks. Looking Ooh. like MC Hammer every time you stepped out in the 90s. And every boy had a crush on 2D. And every man had a crush on Regime. And don't lie, because you know you did, Negro. You know you had a crush on 2D. That's what I'm saying. And, yo, yo, she's a producer, seasoned director, having directed well over 100 episodes of television content. She continues to be a force on screen, most recently starring alongside Mike Epps in the hit Netflix sitcom The Upshaws. This is my friend. And she was the first example that I got a chance to see in my early 20s of how you could have faith but still be impactful in the culture. Please show some love for Kim Fields. Ladies and gentlemen, okay, so I'm gonna go ahead and say this out here. Oh, oh no! You know, y'all know how, like, when you take a date to meet the family, and your brother's always got something to say, and you just hold your breath. What's he gonna say? That's how I feel right now. Okay, you got too much history. In 1993, <laughs> before Whew. I got married. <laughs> you always know when a nigga gonna say that, he gonna say something that's gonna get him in trouble. Right. Oh. <laughs> Before I got booed up in 1993, it was my first time going to the Stellar Gospel Music Awards in Chicago, Ooh. Illinois. Ooh. And Kim was always the celebrity that when you wanted there to be attention on your event, you would see if you could book Kim Fields to show because she loved the culture, then she loved the faith culture, and she was always somebody that you could see at like events where there was gospel music. And so mm-hmm. she came to the Stella Awards. I was 23 years old. I had an album out, and I saw her on stage, and my mouth <laughs> dropped. Right, and some kind of way, I ran into her on the side of the stage, and she says, "Oh my God, I love your song while we sing. I love." that song, and mm-hmm. I was trying so hard to not be a little nasty, little horny, little 23-year-old boy. I, I should have been thinking about Jesus, but I was not thinking about Jesus. I was thinking about, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, can I just hug you? Oh goodness. Some kind of way, man, we just stayed real cool. Yes, And then yes. she came to my wedding, she came mm-hmm. to events that we would do and different things, yeah. and it has just been an honor to just be your mm. friend. Like, do you remember that moment? You of remember course that I day. do. I remember meeting Kirk Franklin for the first time. Who wouldn't remember that? Come on I mean, now. That was my first song. But you were still Kirk Franklin, and I still knew your song. And then, now here, now I'm about to get you. I wanted to make a whole, this was back when they would do like video albums, you know, like make a video for every song and tell a story. I wanted to do that for your first Christmas project. Do you remember that? I don't remember that. you don't have so many hits and people and entourages and things that you don't remember when little old Kim Fields wanted to try to get the whole holiday album. 
Listen, Kim, how does it feel to be famous forever? (laughs) You're funny. It's very surreal because there's only seven years of my life that I was not in front of a camera. Wow. Um, I don't dare say that I wasn't famous because even when I did the Miss Butterworth commercial, I wasn't famous at that point. Ladies and gentlemen, do you guys remember that? (laughs) Do you remember the little ponytails on the little girl? It was in the 70s, right? Yes. And it was a Miss Butterworth's commercial and this cute little girl. That was Kim. That was me. Yeah. So it's very surreal, quite honestly, Kirk. It's one of those where it's almost like asking, you know, what is it like to be your gender or your race or your culture? Because it's been a part of your narrative and your life for so long. I don't sit in it. Do you know what I mean? So no, sir. Like, I don't think of myself as famous or even a celebrity. I'm blessed to be a working actor, a working director, Mm. a working producer, a creative. And I believe that, you know, I'm very grateful for all of the moments that celebrity brings me. Mm. But I don't sit in it. I can't live there because I'll get messed up. I get it. So it really just becomes, that's what helps keep me on the grind and hustle and then the side hustle yeah. and making sure that it's not something that I get comfortable with. Yeah. But I, I recognize the blessing of it. Absolutely. So your mom is this famous coach and actress. We remember her on Good Times. Mm-hmm. She killed it. Uh, yes. We've seen her even with Living Single. She's shown mm-hmm. up and killed it and she's coached everybody. Right? Oh, yes. She coached me. <laughs> you remember when I had a yes, TV pilot? Yes, I do remember that. She coached me and she was a yeah. monster. So you come from this family where your mom's an actor, your mm-hmm. sister acts, your dad yes. is a technical director. When you first came to Hollywood, now where are you from? I'm from Harlem. I'm from New York. And so wow. mom and dad, they got married 25, 26 years ago. But- you know, the original way back to the way back was me and mom. Mom was a single mom. Mom was a teen mom. And she showed me what it is to just be bad. Wow. I mean, just be about it and have no blueprint of her own for that matter to do that, let alone be an example. She was just trying to make sure she did right, mm. <laughs> so to speak. And mm. she did the darn thing. So... Why move from New York to L.A. when there was a lot of work happening in New York? Because Harlem today is different than Harlem from the late 60s and the early 70s. And mom was just not in a space where she felt she could endure that Harlem. Very, very rough. You know, a huge drug scene, a a lot of crime, a lot of poverty. I mean, just we didn't know we were poor. At least I didn't. You know what I mean? That's good. Um, We lived in the basement of a church for a minute. And just wherever I was with mom, that was home. And so moving to L.A., she knew that they were doing TV shows and movies out here. And it just seemed like it was just a better quality of life that she was looking for and in search of. Did you feel any pressure to act? Like, was that something that you wanted? I kind of fell into it because when we lived in New York still... We couldn't afford a babysitter. And some of the other people in her acting class in New York, they couldn't afford babysitters either. And so (laughs) we would all kind of go there. And while they were doing their acting classes, we would imitate what we saw our parents do to keep us entertained. And you know who else was in there? Danielle Spencer, who played D on What's Happening. And so (laughs) that's how we, I want to say, got bit by the acting bug. It's just, we, we just didn't have nothing else to do, you know? And so that was my introduction to it. But when mom was on Broadway and on tour with Hello, Dolly, with Pearl Bailey, and I was, you know, about six years old or so, and I would go to see her at the theater and seeing, it's kind of like you, your testimony, where you saw the instruments and you just kind of pick it up. So for me, I saw how people would create the sets and the props and the costumes and the hair and the makeup. And the behind the scenes is what I gravitated towards, the creating of these worlds and things. And that's how I got into it. But there was no job waiting. It was just auditions and go get an agent. Everybody knew you had to have an agent. And so she said, well, who's the top kid agent? 
And so I met with them and they liked me and they said yes. And they started sending us out and mom got work right away. I got work right away. And so then here comes Aunt Pat, my mother's sister, to take Mm. care of me when mom was on stage. So how did the Miss Butterworth commercial even happen? (laughs) It's because that was the first job you had, That was my first audition, my first job, my first everything. And we only had enough bus fare to get there and back. Wow. Yeah. And so I went there. And what's now a very famous story, when we got there, Janet Jackson was in the waiting room. And you remember the Jackson specials, those summer specials they had when we were little kids. So she was already famous and super cute and everything. And I saw her and I froze up and I was like, I don't belong in here. Let me go home right now. You know, I have funny looking teeth. I have funny looking ponytails. I don't belong here. And, you know, we barely said hello. I mean, you're just kind of in this waiting area. Uh And mom took me into the bathroom, Kirk, and she said, don't let anything or anyone intimidate you, including yourself. She said, that little girl out there, she isn't doing anything to you. You're doing it to yourself up here. Mm. So you just go and be the best you that you can be. You were invited to be here just like her. And that has stuck with me all of my life. So anytime, even as an adult, if I feel a little intimidated, a little like, what am I doing here? I don't see anybody that looks like me. I don't feel like, mm -mm." go right to the bathroom. Hey, you belong here. Don't get in your own way. And I need for people to hear her say that again, man. You belong here. You belong here. Do Mm -hmm. not get in your own own way. That's right. Brilliant. Mm-hmm. You were on the facts of life from about age 10 to 19. That's a baby. That is yeah. a baby. Yeah. I, I Actually, mean, it was, yeah, age 9 to 18. So Age, age uh, 9 yeah. to 18. Age and during 18. puberty, which, which could be awkward and, you know, just Horrible. like, <laughs> how was that for you having to figure out all of that mm-hmm. as a nine-year-old for almost 10 years? Almost 10 years, yeah. Well, the first thing was, again, that sense of you belong here. You were invited here. You do the best that you can do. Another gem my mother told me when I first started Facts of Life, and this was after one of what I know is your favorite shows because you and Tammy sent me a text cracking up watching it. Baby, I'm back. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Baby, I'm back. Baby, I'm back. That is so (laughs) old. (laughs) Shut up. You know, with those shows, mom would always tell me, and she put her hand up here. She says, you started 100% and everything that you say or do keeps you up here or chips away at it. Mm. So where are you going to end up when this is all said and done? Are you going to still be up here or somewhere down here? Mm. And that, you know, has really been the glue that helps me in my professional walk. You know, I'm a crew baby. I always want to make sure my crew is good and looked after and taken care of and learning from them and all of that. So going through puberty and facts of life and being in in a fishbowl, essentially, from age nine to 18 is incredibly surreal. And I think it informed me because we all went through a lot of yuckety yuck together, you know, growing up. It's kind of like, I guess, what it would be like being in a band. Uh for your teen years or a team, you know, if you play team sports where it's crappy right now, but at least I'm not alone, (laughs) Mm. you know? And so, so there were those tough, difficult times when your body is changing, when your body is changing on camera in front of people. I'm grateful that I didn't do that in this climate of social media and everybody having a doggone microphone. Wow. That's a Yeah, no thank you to that. I want to ask you this. I get to live vicariously through other people's experiences. And I want you to help paint for me what it was like living in Hollywood in the 80s as a young kid star that was on the show, all these white folk getting Mm -hmm. introduced to all of this different (laughs) stuff. Yeah. (laughs) Facts of life is a whole bunch of white folk. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. You know, great white folk, but a whole bunch of white folk. But yeah. (laughs) Tell me how it was for young Hollywood during that era. Tell me what you did. What was the swag? What was the places y'all would go? What would y'all do as young celebrities? Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you. 
But I was that young celebrity that was terrified that if I even did a puff, that would be the one time that people went, oh, we ain't no weed could kill you. Are you serious? <laughs> that you, I was scaredy cat. I didn't do nothing. <laughs> Where did that come from? Where do you think that fear came from? Twofold. One, I, I'm blessed to be a part of kind of a club, if you will, of child stars. And then as you grow up, former child stars. But with that, unfortunately, there's this huge stigma and a lot of statistics of it ain't going to go good. (laughs) I mean, you can almost run parallel with child star and it ain't going to go good. Mm. And so when they intersect, that usually means either tragedy or statistic or something very, very negative. And honestly, bro, I've kept feeling like my village deserves better from me. My village will not mourn me, either because I don't lost my mind or my life. And so I didn't want to do nothing, you know? Now I had fun, but way back hindsight, I had like corny fun. Like I was corny. And I think that's what I kept bumping up against in being around my castmates with Living Single. I mean, you had Latifah Dana who is, you know, Jersey and a rapper and all of that. Kim Coles, who's just so joyful and funny, but she came from stand-up. So she had that comedy club kind of edge to her. Uh-huh. Erica Alexander is, you know, Philly and she was cousin Pam, but she wasn't a Cosby kid like that. So, you know, so I felt like everybody had swag and I didn't. And largely because those years of facts of life, I was around. I mean, we all grew up on the same studio lot, all the Norman Lear shows. So there was Ricky Schroeder, Jason Bateman, Alfonso Ribeiro, uh, Todd and Gary and Dana, Glenn Scarpelli, who was on One Day at a Time. Menudo came through there when they first jumped off. I mean, so we had a whole bunch of people. But it was just one of those. We were good kids for the most part. And then when it started to go sideways for some of us. It's almost like that was more fuel for Kim to go, yep, no, no thing. I'm I'm not clubbing. I'm not drinking. I'm not this. What do you think the biggest magnet of the failure is? Being in it, what do you think makes everything such a case study where it's the same thing that catches the same people the same way? What do you think it is? And why do you think it is? (sighs) I mean, granted that every case is different, of course, but I'm sure you know from the music side, when you get too much, too young, too fast, and you don't know how to deal with it, whether it's too much money, too much success, these different elements coming at you and you've not prepared for it and your family hasn't prepared for it. You know, there's Mm. no class on how to be a parent to a child star. Yes. Uh, how to be a parent to a child prodigy, a tennis player, or a gymnast or whatever. Everybody's trying to figure it out. Yeah. And so for me, I know one great component was my mother never stopped parenting me. She was not Ooh. so in love with who I was. That's good. That she was a fan. She was grateful and loved that I loved what I was doing, but she made sure I was about it in terms of my talent. And she made sure that she wasn't raising a little jerk. So I was always still professional. I was always still a courteous child. Amazing. Um, You know, I was always humble. She made sure financially that my first car, I didn't have no BMW, a Benz or whatever. I had the family beat up Honda Accord with the radio ripped out that got stolen. Are you serious? Baby. While you were on Facts of Life. Whilst. Yes. <laughs> Whilst. <laughs> driving so did you up drive to, it up on the lot? Uh, yes. Next to other people, other child stars, their Porsche, their sports car, Kim whatever. Kim, you lying. Kim, you lying. God strike me down if I am. He know the truth. He put so it in hard to give to me. <laughs> so did you feel that was unfair? It's because you had the money? I didn't feel it was unfair, I understood it. I really did. And it's not like she was hoarding or withholding from me, you know. Don't get it twisted. I still had my 300ZX. It just wasn't first. Got it. That's brilliant. That's brilliant of your mama. Mm-hmm. You know, I mm-hmm. and I have a lot of respect for her 
But at the same time, Kim, I got a lot of respect for you because you acquiesced to what she was putting in front of you. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you didn't Mm -hmm. fight against that and you saw the value and what she was trying to instill in you, that's a very, Mm -hmm. very beautiful thing, man. And I, Mm -hmm. man, I congratulate y'all. But I'm going to tell you something. I couldn't have done it. (laughs) You ain't going to pull up on no lock button in my car, man, like smoke and boo-boo. And and somebody got a Z twenty-eight no. That ain't happening, mama. You got you got to beat me. Right. So so listen, Kim, what did it feel like for you to move from being a teen on TV to being a woman on one of the coolest shows of the nineties? Like, was that a yes. psychological shift for you, even with living singles? That oh, was yeah. maybe more difficult than we would realize as fans. Absolutely. That okay, you Okay, so break you, that you thing said down it. to us. You said it so brilliantly. It was difficult, but what trumped the difficulty was the wonderful challenge of that moment because Regine was not like any character I'd ever played. And even though I'd been on television for over a decade, (laughs) nine of those years, I was one character. (laughs) Uh Uh There were certain things that were primers, the prelude to Regine. The guest appearance I did on Martin. The appearance yes. I did on Fresh. Oh, yes. <laughs> the guest appearance I did on Fresh Prince. This play that I did with the wonderful Tommy Ford from mm. Martin. Tommy saw something in me I didn't see in myself, and he cast me as this very sexy, ingenuish kind of a diva in this play. And again, Living Single had not come on my journey yet. Mm. And so I thought. I'm not that. I don't know how to play that. And he said, trust me, trust me. And it was very freeing. You know, it's like when you get asked to do music, that's not your normal wheelhouse. Hmm. You're not just a gospel musician. You're a musician. You're a producer. Yes, you have a certain sweet spot, but then there's all this other stuff. So for me, it was liberating. And it was that primer. And I said yes to Tommy's play. Now, y'all, it wasn't some play that was going to be on Broadway and tour and make six figures. It was in this little hole-in-the-wall theater in the hood of hoods. Mm. But several of us had said yes because the material was really good. Be careful what you say no to. Wow. Don't be so all up here, family, that you just going to say, well, no, I don't do that. Wow. You better do wow. that thing. So now enter Living Single. And to play this exactly what Tommy saw in me. This sexy ingenue, didn't have it all together, but thought she did, but was willing to be vulnerable to a certain extent. All of those wonderful layers that were fantastic to play also because they're not me at all. (laughs) Not me at all. I hate shopping. (laughs) Uh, You know, I hated all of that. She was so not like me. And so, yes, the psychological jump. And here's a little thing too that people overlook. Facts of Life was not obviously a black show. It was just a show. But then to go from that cast to the living single cast, now, even though eventually we would not be perceived as a black show, but mm-hmm. just a great show. True. So there True. was that where I felt like what I had been brought up as to be the good girl, to be the church girl, to be so professional and so nice and so this, I felt like I was boring to myself. Really? So I spent those years behind the scenes in what I perceived and what I created and up here, <laughs> in my mind, I felt like I was in the shadows of the energy and the power of Dana and Kim and Erica and even with John and TC because I felt like everybody knew who they were and I was so struggling trying to figure out who I was. Wow, Amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. So how long did it take for you to find that heartbeat for that character? Well, thankfully for the character, not long because Yvette was so great in how she created those characters. Everything was pretty much on the page. So to breathe life into it was was just wonderful. But for Kim finding that heartbeat, I think we have seasons where we feel like, okay, we're in a groove, we're comfortable in our skin. And because society has said, oh, when you turn 30, it's this. But when you hit your 40s, it's this. And I just felt like I kept hitting these quote unquote milestones. 
And I would get comfortable in my skin, like in my mid to late 30s, that block, I felt like I was comfortable in my skin. And then like, it seemed like in a blink of an eye, no, I'm not. Mm. And then life happens and wonderfully so, you know, motherhood and more work and family dynamics and all of that. And then I just went, oh, I, I don't have my footing yet. I'm a good person. Mm-hmm. But I started really scrutinizing, well, this doesn't work for me as well. Even as a person of faith, I'm not sure that this part serves me or I think I've run my course with this and trying to figure it all out again. So I think if anything, being open to the fact that it comes in waves, you don't always have it together and that's okay. With that, we're going to take a quick break. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. And let's get back into it. Oh, wait a minute. Before I say this, girl, you got to give me some tea, though. Give me some tea. Who was your boyfriend crush back in the 80s? So while we saw you being cute on Tootie, who were you in the backseat of that little raggedy car? Like, who were you kissing on? Who were you sneaking getting some sugar from? Tell her, well, tell her truth. Don't make it yeah. super spiritual. Yeah, who was no. your little boo back then? <laughs> who was your little boy toy? <laughs> Hilarious. Well, you got to remember a couple of things, put it in context. First of all, and I said this to Kevin Hart a few months ago because they were on his show talking about childhood crushes and things. And somebody said, well, don't forget to And they was like, yeah, but blah, 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 blah. And I said, I get it because I feel like when people say, you know, oh, you were my crush. I feel like I got that by default because there wasn't nobody else there for a minute. Like when people say, you know, you was fine. I wasn't the hot girl, you know, so I can appreciate that. But it's not like everybody was checking for me or like my dance card was full. Come on, remember, mushrooms, heavy bangs, braces, <laughs> awkward body. Come on, family. Aww. Come on. That being said, my childhood crushes, of course, Todd Bridges, of course. But Randy Jackson, baby, Randy Jackson. And as Jan and I became friends and I would see him. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Kiss? Did y'all kiss? No, no, mm-mm, no. He was so much older than me, too, you know, because I was Did a you little and girl. Kiss? Nope. Nope. Who nope. you kiss, Kim? <sighs> Tell us who you kiss. <laughs> well, I mean, I did have a teen boyfriend, you know, but he was like the star athlete at his school. Okay, okay. Okay, what about Regine? When you were old then dating. There you go. Yeah. So that, yeah, Regine. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Who? So, give, give me the tea. Who, well, well, who was your little secret garden? So terrible. Well, I think everybody knows John Hinton and I dated for a while during that first season of Living no. Single. You didn't know that? He played Overton. No. <laughs> it's cute. Wow. How did y'all still work together after like when y'all broke up? Was that awkward? It was, but we were professionals first and foremost. And then because he's just, you know, Mr. Funny Man. So he would always find ways to make a joke or be funny about it. Um, We still cared very much for each other and had a lot of Uh respect for each other. And it wasn't like a bad breakup. It was fine. (laughs) So listen, Kim, I want to ask you this, sis. Yeah. Man, Mm -hmm. you have seen the business change. Mm -hmm. You've seen it change in good ways, bad ways, since you first started acting. It seemed like back then there was such a clear delineation between television stars Mm -hmm. versus film stars. And now it seems more like you can just find yourself being very fluid 
in any space that you want to do. Did you feel limited back then, restricted in the way that you were viewed after playing these iconic television characters that you think would not happen to you now? Yes, I did feel limited. I felt like um, the industry, not so much fans or viewers or audiences, but I felt like the industry will put you in a box. You know, we're in a very creative industry, entertainment, and Mm -hmm. yet it can be run by some of the most unimaginative, uncreative people I've ever met. It's it's really striking to me. Like, how are you here? How are you here? Wow. But anyway, <laughs> so so the idea of only seeing, you know, people in certain types of characters, I felt that quite a bit. And even when, you know, in the 90s, that big jolt in the industry because they gave permission to... John Singleton and Spike Lee and Julie Dash. And then it grew from there. Bill Duke transitioned into directing from acting and stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, and that's honestly how I started getting into directing and writing and producing because I felt like I wanted to be able to be a part of more than just acting and more of the storytelling parts. So nowadays, I feel like because the industry has changed with streaming. First, it was cable, you know, then streaming and now social media platforms where you can put content. And because we've always known that content is king, but quality content, don't forget that, family. Quality content. Don't just throw some junk up there just because you got a channel. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, buddy. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, buddy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I feel like there's that sense of you can do more because there is more. Wow. That is so good. That is so good. Now, this moment of the 90s, and you just said something that just gave a little context because there were so many Black TV stars that were making these incredible appearances in these big Black 90s movies. But the truth is, I didn't see much of Kim in those movies, and you were on some of the biggest Black Mm -hmm. TV shows in the 90s. And so you started directing because you felt like they were tripping. (laughs) <laughs> and, and so you wanted to be able to establish your own content. Did you take yeah. that personal? Initially, yes, because how could you not, quite yeah. honestly? Facts. Um, Facts. And, and even for somebody that has been in the industry as long as I had been at that time. Facts. Um, Living Single you, was a huge show to yes, the culture. Yes, absolutely. And thank you. Uh, and yet there were times that we felt overlooked by certain aspects of the culture in media. Mm. But then, you know, in terms of like the movies and things like that, there was a part of me that after a while, first of all, you can only take a personal for so long. And then I had to, you know, shake myself. You know, the word says David encouraged himself. I cannot tell you how much that that word has really just taken root and become oak trees in my spirit because just lost a dear, dear brother friend, David Arnold recently and the name of his last special on Netflix is called It Ain't for the Week. And I was just getting ready to say, this ain't for the week. Mm. And so you have to know how to work your mind so that you don't lose your mind. Mm. So so for me, yes, learning how to direct and then starting to direct and making sure I paid my dues and get my comeuppance just because I was quote unquote Kim Fields, it's not like Warner Brothers is going to hand me a $3 million picture to direct. Mm-hmm. No. Mm-hmm. So you see, I'm a second AD on a short film that Blair Underwood directed, getting my, you know, my comeuppance. But I often have felt that people don't see me. And that's an interesting dynamic to navigate through when they then put, you know, let me give you your flowers now, as they say now, or you're an icon, you're a legend, you're a living legend, those types of things. And yet there's a lot of times when I don't feel like either from the work side or the industry side, like I'm almost overlooked. And so I had to flip the script. Here's the answer to the question, though. I had to realize that if you don't see me, then I have the element of surprise as my mm, weapon. And then good. I'm going to get you behind. 
you know, ladies and gentlemen, if she wanted to say ass, she could have said ass. I know people come on my podcast and think that they got to use words like behind and booty. But, you know, if you want to say that, I'm going to get your ass. You, that's something you could have said on, on this podcast. This Listen, is what you know you can well, say that. Then but I'm now, get, and, and it's G-I-T. I'm going to get your ass. Yes, sir. Yes, <laughs> that's sir. how you got to yes, really say it if you're going to say it. <laughs> Why do you think that is, though, Kim? Why do you think that challenge exists? I think that there are people in the industry, whether it's representation, meaning your actual agent, manager, certain producers or directors, that they have their favorites, you know, and they can be loyal to their favorites. So I get that. And I feel like I've had the respect of directors and producers and, you know, those who had a crush on me over the years as a kid and wow. all that. But I, I didn't shift and transition to being a favorite. It's almost like, you know, oh, my gosh. Okay, but now we're going to get this one and this one and this one. Oh, I love you. Okay, so we got this one and this one. And it's this really bizarre, almost like a dual existence. And so I've had to, you know, people talk about having a seat at the table. I feel like I've had to build my own table. Wow. And the chairs. And then let other people understand, okay, I'm not in the room where it happens, so I made a room where it happens. And then slowly but surely, people have come in. And let me qualify that for all the saints. I'm not saying me. And I understand that first and foremost, it is breathed upon with grace and mercy. Baby, you ain't got to do that on this podcast. This podcast ain't no, this ain't no missionary Baptist, evangelical, Episcopalian, Seventh-day Adventist, Methodist, Lutheran, Church of the Latter, Mama Say, Mama 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 Say, of the Nazarene, Episcopal, Friendly Nim, uh, Kojic, Pentecostal Church and Friends. This is good words. This is words yes. for everybody. We got everybody, everybody on here. Yes, everybody exactly. Listening. But I understand, you know, there is a place for humility. I really do. But at the same time, I understand what I've started calling bold humility. Mm. You have to be bold in this thing, you know, and and that's where I am now. When I talk about that footing again, that's the space that I really do occupy in this moment. So now that you are killing it as a director, Mm-hmm. Who was your mentor? Who helped you get into that part of it? Who said, baby, come get behind this camera and let me show you a next stream of career for yourself? So in terms of more like colleagues, it was me, Blair Underwood and Malcolm Jamal Warner. And wow. we had all kind of like this unspoken thing that we were like, you know what, we're going to transition here because we're not being included in that new wave. Mm-hmm. So we kind of worked in tandem with each other in the early days. But the crew from Facts of Life, there's a great, now he's a director of photography, but he was a lighting director named Don Morgan. He's got a zillion Emmys. Don taught me lighting and he would pull me to the side and teach me what the lights were called and the different lighting schemes and things like that. Our cameramen and women, um, just, just everybody that I've worked with. And also it was me wanting to learn. Mm, it was me wanting to learn. So if I wasn't in school, I was on set learning. Mm. So if I wasn't in a scene and I wasn't in school, I wasn't in my dressing room goofing off or whatever. I was learning. And so now I, I know it. everybody's, you know, position. A good athlete knows how to play all the positions. Yes. A good yes. musician knows how to play all the instruments. Yes. Yes, well, that musician is cold blood. If you could play every instrument, you prince. (laughs) (laughs) What's been your favorite project to direct? Which one have you loved out of all of them so far? Well, currently I direct on That Girl, Lele, and I love doing that show. The family is great. The writers, it's very creative. I love directing in the kids space because you have to really know how to engage with young people to keep them Mm. occupied and to keep them interested. So I love being creative in that space. I didn't direct this one, but I loved executive producing and coming up with the story for the movie that I did last holiday season called Adventures and Christmasing. That felt like I really leveled up. You know, it was such a different space for me. And like I said, where you don't see me coming. So now, oh, hey, y'all. Yeah, I'm in the action adventure rom-com space too. Oh, yeah, I did my stunts. You know what I mean? So it's just... Anything that's uncharted waters, that's the order yeah. of the day for me, bro. So now you're back. Don't call it a comeback. I've been here been for here years. Been here for years. Come on now. 
I'm and not now, back. I'm just, you know, on this platform again. Now, how did that come about? This uh, show that's on Netflix right now called The Upshaws. <laughs> what was the genesis of that? Whose idea was that? Well, it started with Mike Epps. This was his idea that he took to his dear friend, Wanda Sykes. And wow. really, Mike wanted to do like a blue collar working class family in Indiana, you know, his hometown, and just wanted to show a family that just didn't have it all together, family that had messiness, that didn't have a blueprint, and just trying to figure it out. But the tie that always binds is, of course, love. Yes. And they wanted to tell the stories in a bit of a throwback Norman Lear type of storytelling, the sitcoms that we grew up on as kids. Mm -hmm. And Netflix said, yes, where do we sign up? So now this character that you play, yes. this Regina character yes. <laughs> on the up shows, it's, it's like mm -hmm. y'all seem a little lit. You know what I'm saying? You know, y'all on the cussing <laughs> each other out, deceiving each other, kicking each other out the house. Just yes. some real life challenges. Now, are there any parallels between your character <laughs> and you, Kim, in real life? Well, first of all, I wasn't even checking for another comedy. You know, I had done 14 years of sitcom television was like, nah. I don't want to do another comedy. But they said Mike Epps wanted to Sykes Netflix. I was like, ooh, okay. And then I read mm -hmm. the script. And what I loved is at the heart of it all for my character, she is this person who, yes, happens to be a woman. Yes, happens to be a woman of color. But she is this person that just sees something else for her and her family and wants to go after it with all that she's got. And then realizing that, oh, but my family, the very people that I want to give more to, they're the ones that keep messing it up for me, so to speak, in her eyes. So none of that is my testimony. Amen. Uh -huh. But uh -huh. I can appreciate that deep love for family. I can appreciate her challenges in her work life where, like I said earlier, she doesn't always feel seen. Sometimes she feels like she's been passed over. So certain things I feel like I understand those elements of her. Sometimes her absolute rage because humanity seems so like, what the hell? How did your mind yeah. think this was okay? And yeah. so yeah. I'm, I'm there a lot in terms of just life, not specific uh -huh. to my family, but just life overall. Well, one thing I know that you definitely have that I've always seen you have, you have a love for family. Yeah. yeah I mean, you have always loved family. You always love your mama. You have always loved yes. your babies. How do you now, Kim, balance this robust show business career with pouring into your family? What's been the secret for you of making all of that work? Well, remember what I said at the beginning, what mom showed me when she just said, we're moving or come see me at the theater. She incorporated me into her life. And that's what we did when the children were young. I mean, my God, remember when we were at Stellar's or Dove, one of those award shows, and, you know, Sebastian was like, for some reason, he called you Uncle Light Switch. Yeah. And I thought, that's really <laughs> deep because you have this light around you. But my point is, they were right there with me. <laughs> so sometimes it's incorporating them into the life. Sometimes it's recognizing that they want their own sense of things that ground them and respecting that and realizing that what's important to them has to be important to you. Yes. So I take the time to listen when Sebastian shows me something he's created in his art or they both tell me an achievement that they've made in their gaming worlds and things like mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like overall, just making sure that they know that they are just as important, if not more, and that the things that we do for them are for them. But yes, also for ourselves. Don't try to snow your kids and act like, you know, oh, this is all for you. No, you get something out of this, too. You get either the shine or the love of fans or the promotion or the fulfillment or whatever it is. But they see that and they find value in understanding my happiness, in yes. understanding my passions as well. So I feel like that's kind of the the ingredients for how, you know, the kids are sane and wonderful human beings. But my deep love of family is I have a spectacular village and I'm no joke, bro. You and Tammy being a part of my village has been 
everything. But my village is absolutely incredible. And I'm so grateful for all of you. Wow. What happened for you as a young lady? When, When did you get introduced to faith? So my first introduction, and I say it that way because I feel like there's, you know, an ebb and flow, our relationship with faith. Because if it's not, then it's stale. And don't nobody want stale faith and stale worship. And we ain't doing stale. But my first intro, I was 14 and we were doing a play in the inner city. And we were uh, visiting different churches to promote the play that we were doing. And we went to this one church and I just remember feeling, and I was a good kid. I didn't have any sort of, you know, Saul Paul transition, but I just felt this really strong sense of love during the service. And that wasn't from the people or anything like that. I really couldn't explain it. And that was, I think in my head, my either understanding or my concept of faith, that sense that it was like an overwhelming feeling of love. Mm. And so we joined that church and became a part of church. And then I was always involved in church in my young adult years. I grew up under Bishop and Mom Blake, Dad and Mom wow. Blake at West Angeles. And, yeah, and then yeah, as I got yeah. older and life happens and, you know, after a while I went through a major transition of I'm not doing faith right now. I'm not mm. walking away from God or what I believe. I'm just so severely disappointed mm. and so hurt. And it wasn't like the church hurt that people talk about and <laughs> been there too. But gotcha, um, gotcha, gotcha. it was one of those things where I had to take some time to go, okay, I, I don't have any more for this right now. Because, I mean, I was serving and serving and serving, and I'm Chip's kid, and I'm serving and serving, and I'm a tither, and I'm serving. I'm on the pastoral committee. You know, all these things that you run down your resume to God, and you like, I planted this garden. I watered other people's gardens, and I planted carrots, and I got telephone poles. Mm. What kind of justice? So I I had to put it on pause. That's so real. I saw this interview, bro, with Liza Minnelli. She was about to go on a tour or something. And they said, you've battled all these different demons and things. And how have you overcome it? And I thought she was going to say she had revisited her mother's work. Of course, Judy Garland. She said, I looked at my father's work. Her father, great director, Vincent Minnelli. And he directed all these wonderful movies back in the day. And she said, I looked at his movies and I realized I come from that stock. Mm. And I opened my blackout drapes, which had been closed for weeks. And I looked out at the mountains and the sky and I said, I come from that stock. I'm looking at my father's work. And that unlocked some things for me and really took me to another level so that when other hurts came, other disappointments came, I, I don't recall being at that rock bottom place again. That is beautiful. That is so real and so honest. And it is an ebb and flow. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think that it also makes us appreciate so much more the patience and kindness of God because yes. we get lost here and this planet can get really loud and mm. then it can get extremely quiet, you Yo. know, and, and mm-hmm. you know, and so you are trying to find your help language, help, SOS, and and, yes. and people, you know, they, they find it in different things. They find it in their careers, they mm-hmm. find it in their own space of spirituality, but, you know, I'm glad to you know, probably subscribe to the same journey that you've subscribed to that I really believe that sometimes we hit rock bottom to find out that God is the rock at the bottom. Yes, you know? and so absolutely. We, we, yeah. So listen, man, I, I, I want to know, did you ever, when you got in your 20s, 30s, did you ever smoke a joint? Once. Well, here comes, okay, <laughs> tell us about that. Twice I did. Get- so once with two of my girlfriends and I was like, it's burning, it's burning. <laughs> And then in the Caribbean, and then I was like, oh, I'm about to really get some good stuff here. (laughs) So I did, they called Cliff. And so I had some, and I just remember I got really, really giggly. Like everything was funny as hell to me. And then I got sleepy. So I'm a lightweight in terms of alcohol. 
But here's a funny story. And Wanda Sykes makes fun of me all the time. I'm such a lightweight. So I had my little heart broken by a friend that we had tried dating. And I was like, oh, it's going great. And he was like, no. I was out of town. And so I went to this bar in the middle of the day, middle of the week. And I had about 12 Malibu rums. Jeez. Yeah. And I'm not a drinker, but that sounds like a lot. <laughs> and it's a lot of sugar. And you're okay. a lightweight, Kim. And you hadn't had anything to eat. And you're short. So, you know, it does not have far to travel before it can really mess you up. I didn't get off of that bar stool good before I just let the whole blah. It was horrible. Really? It was horrible. I'm not like, you know, like drunk girl and partying. I'm like, <laughs> oh, the world is such, it just needs help. Like all of my empathy. <laughs> you it's turned horrible. into Michael Jackson. We are the world. the world. Make it a better place. <laughs> You're no fun. Exactly. I and love I it. feel bad. Like, oh, I'm not fun. That but, just shows your heart though, man. That just shows who yeah. what George really made up. But clear-headed, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a truckload fun. I promise. What's next for you? Tell us what you're working on next. What is next for my yes, sister? Yes, what is next? So I have a few projects in development that I'm really, really excited about. A couple of comedies, a drama. Mm. I can't wait for Grammy time to roll around because I slid into your space a bit as a songwriter and producer. Jonathan McReynolds. Yes, Jonathan McReynolds blessed us and me in particular by singing on the soundtrack for my movie Adventures in Christmasing. And it's a song that I had the great pleasure of writing and producing. Congratulations. With a, thank you. With a handful of wonderful artisans as well called The Greatest Adventure. So we're looking forward to that. Uh, thank you. Um, part two of the Upshaws will be dropping soon. We promise. Part two is coming <laughs> of, of season two. And uh, directing some more episodes of That Girl Lele. Lots of good things jumping off. And y'all, she look good. Skin just glossy. <laughs> Skin look like a warm spring <laughs> evening after after a tender moist rain. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to help me thank somebody who has been my homie for mm -hmm. almost 30 years. Yes. She is a beast. She's, she's a great friend. She's an incredible woman of faith. She can't hold her alcohol. She's an amazing Artist, amazing storyteller. She ain't done nothing wrong. She ain't got no teeth for us. She ain't been in the back of a bar kissing and gyrating on Emmanuel Lewis. Or <laughs> Grandma, I hate you right now. <laughs> she ain't done nothing dirty, ain't done nothing nasty. So we ain't got really nothing. We go, Ooh, girl, what? <laughs> Show some love for my friend, Kim Fields. Yay, I love you, brother. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'll be nasty on the page in my characters. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so thank much, you. sis. So thank y'all so much for listening to Good Words, man. I hope you are enjoying yourself. I hope you're, man, enjoying the journey that you're taking with your boy. And if you are, please do me a favor. Leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Can you do that for me? I appreciate it. And don't you forget, you can never go too far or you can't come back home. Good Words with Kirk Franklin is a collaboration between For Your Soul Entertainment, Sony Music Entertainment, Arts Inspiration, and something else. Produced by Janicia Francis with senior producer Danielle Jones-Wesley. Associate producers are Danya Abdel-Hamid, Rachel Chodar, and Kyra Asabe-Bansu. It's executive produced by Ron Hill, Reese Brooks, Sarita Wesley, Tom Koenig, Hybrid Agency, and myself, your boy, Kirk Franklin. This episode was mixed by Calvin Bailiff, and special thanks to Charlie Yador and Steve Ackerman. 